We are so excited to bring you season two of Curbsiders Teach, our special mini series on teaching and medicine. I'm Dr. Molly Hoyblein. And I'm Dr. Ira Krasnowska. So pumped to be back with you, Molly, on season two, where we cover fascinating topics such as precepting models, teaching physical exam skills, tips for supporting learners of all abilities, and more. We know you'll find valuable skills in this Curbsiders Teach podcast series. So let's unlock your potential to be a great medical educator. Join us weekly in late summer 2022 to hear expert interviews bringing you teaching pearls and practice-changing knowledge to inspire the next generation of medical educators. Listen to the Curbsiders Teach wherever you get your podcasts. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. All right, this is the part of the show where Matt tries to muster up the appropriate energy to start, and I just I don't have it in me. But welcome back to the Curbsiders. I am joined by Dr. Elena Gibson. Hello. <laughs> Hello, that Dr. Was Gibson. Good. How are you? <laughs> yeah, no, that was great. great. We're high energy. This feels right. <laughs> uh, on tonight's episode, we are discussing the updated USPSTF guidelines with our guest, Dr. John Wong. In just a minute, I will let uh, Dr. Gibson tell us more about the guest and the topic. But first, let me remind you what we do. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Elena, tell us about who we talked to and what we talked about. Happy to, Paul. We have a great conversation about aspirin use for primary uh, cardiovascular disease prevention with our guest, Dr. John Wong. Uh, We talk about the change in recommendations from to an age of 40 for initiation of aspirin if their risk is high enough. And we talk about the bleeding risk associated with aspirin use. So Dr. John Wong, he is a member of the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, the Interim Chief Scientific Officer, Vice Chair of Academic Affairs, and a primary care internist at Tufts Medical Center and Professor of Medicine at the Tufts University School of Medicine. He went to Haverford College and the University of Chicago School of Medicine. He completed an internal medicine residency and a clinical decision-making fellowship at Tufts. And he has been there for the past 40 years, making wise decisions. (laughs) All right, without further ado, let's talk to Dr. Wong. Hi, Dr. Wong. After after much ado and many technical difficulties, we're we're finally getting started. So I'd like to thank you for taking the time to to talk to us. Um, we we usually start by asking our guests to tell us a little bit about themselves. So if you could just give us a one liner uh, about who you are and what you do, and if you include at least sort of one fact outside of medicine, that's always appreciated too. Sure, um, I'm a primary care internist at Tufts Medical Center, where I'm also the interim chief scientific officer. Uh, in this role, I'm a member of the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, which I'm a proud member of. And in terms of about myself, uh, the tagline I like as a doctor comes from my daughter when she was two years old. And she says, he plays on the computer and he eats. (laughs) (laughs) Be on my tombstone. (laughs) I can imagine it now. (laughs) Uh, so do you play any fun video games or 
I do not play video games. <laughs> At least not currently. When my son was much younger, uh, there was something called Red Alert that he was very fond of. <laughs> well, that sounds fun. <laughs> sounds very Cold War. I'm not aware it, it of it. Is. it is. My, my um, daughter would play something called Frogger. <laughs> Frogger was okay, fun. Frogger I have familiarity yeah. with. That's good. All right. Well, that that is perfect. So thank you for spending time with us. And, and obviously, the reason that we've um, asked you to speak with us is to update us about the new USPCF guideline for aspirin for primary prevention of cardiovascular disease. So as per usual, uh, I think we'd like to start with the case just to kind of frame the discussion. And so, Alina, why don't I let you tell us about uh, our poor Mr. Sure. Young? Sure. So Nathan Young, he is a 44-year-old male. He has a history of type 2 diabetes, hypertension. He takes some lisinopril. He's presenting for a yearly follow-up in clinic. He does not smoke, and he has no history of CVD, but his father and brother both had a history of coronary artery disease. You calculate his 10-year CVD risk score, and it's 11%. So before we get to the specifics of Mr. Young's case, why is aspirin use for prevention of CVD considered in these guidelines? So why aspirin? Well, heart disease and stroke are the leading causes of mortality in the United States, accounting for over one in four deaths. And if you look at how many first strokes and first heart attacks will be expected over the next year, it's over 1.2 million here in the United States. And when you think about prevalence, because our focus is on individuals or patients who have not yet shown a manifestation of cardiovascular disease. So we think about the risk of developing that first stroke or first heart attack. And we think about the group of individuals who have more than a 10% risk. And when you think about that, people who are 40 to 49 in the United States have a prevalence of about 2 to 5%. And for those who are 50 to 59, the prevalence goes up to 7 to 30% in men and women. And when you go beyond that, the prevalence goes even higher. So our recommendations focus on people who are 40 to 59 years old who should have a conversation with their clinician to see if they're at higher risk for having that first cardiovascular disease event. And if so, whether taking aspirin is right. We call this a grade C, meaning that there's a moderate certainty that aspirin use will have a small net benefit of preventing that first heart attack or first stroke for those who are 10% or higher 10-year risk. Now, one way to remember this is to think of a grade C as C for conversation. It's an opportunity to have a conversation. And and John, for calculating this risk, does USPSTF have a recommendation for a tool to use? Is the pooled cohort equation or is there there some other yeah, how how do we get there, I guess, to actually have this discussion? Yes, Paul. There, as you know, are multiple risk estimators available. The only one that has been validated within the United States is the American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association pooled cohort equation. So that would be uh, an excellent choice, but there are others um, that could be used. And 
we do recognize that at times the pooled cohort equations can overestimate the risk of stroke or heart attack, but there are also populations in which uh, it may underestimate the risk. So keep in mind that the risks may be higher or lower, and again, it's an estimate to guide treatment considerations. Are there any specific populations where it over and underestimates that risk that we know of? Sure. So the underestimated risk can sometimes occur in patients from socioeconomically uh, disadvantaged populations. And then one example of where it is overestimated is in healthcare professionals, such as physicians or nurses. Interesting. And thinking of the age, so this is focusing on the 40 to 59 years, how is, is that any different than the prior recommendations or was that a similar age group? So the recommendation has changed dramatically from our last recommendation. The last time we looked at this in 2016, we had a I statement for 40 to 49, where there weren't enough individuals in the studies for us to recommend for or against aspirin for them. And in 50 to 59-year-olds, it was a, a B recommendation, meaning that we should prescribe um, aspirin because we felt that the benefits exceeded the risk for harms. And what we have since those 2016 recommendations are a lot more evidence about the harms of aspirin. And also three studies in 2018 where aspirin was tested in randomized controlled trials in higher risk populations. I, I, and I do want to get to the risks um, because I feel like that, obviously that was one of the things that drove the revision of the guideline. But before we get there, for adults between 40 and 59, can you speak to the extent of the net benefit? Like, are we talking like huge, huge risk reductions that, that weren't the conversation or, and that we're balancing that against risk or sort of what kind of benefit do we expect from aspirin in the population that we're, we're at least having the discussion? So one of the reasons this comes up is when we think about the evidence for benefit, the very first studies about the benefit of aspirin for cardiovascular disease was published in the New England Journal of Medicine back in 1988 as part of the physician's health study. And that study remarkably showed a 45% reduction in heart attack and stroke and dying from heart attack and stroke. So they even published that study prematurely because the evidence was so strong. Now... I'm going to fast forward to 2018 when there were three landmark studies published in consecutive months in the New England Journal of Medicine, in the Lancet, and in the New England Journal of Medicine. And those three studies had tens of thousands of individuals in each one. I'm going to spend a little more time talking about the study of patients with diabetes. So clearly, Patients with diabetes have a higher risk for cardiovascular disease. 
And I want to point out that the average age of those patients was about 63, and they were followed on average almost seven and a half years. So we're talking about what happens to them in terms of cardiovascular disease. And if it's okay, I'm also going to talk a little bit about what happens to them in terms of uh, harms so that you can get a picture of the benefits versus the harms. So in patients with diabetes, there was a 12% reduction in what are called composite cardiovascular outcomes. So that includes stroke and heart attack. And all three of these studies use a composite outcome. And there's some slight variations of that, but think about that as counting the numbers of folks who have heart attack or a stroke or who may die from a heart attack or may die from a stroke, excluding those who might have a, a, a bleeding event, uh, which could be attributed to aspirin. So in the uh, ASCEND trial, that's the acronym, they found a 12% reduction in this cardiovascular disease composite income, uh, outcome. On the harm side, they found roughly a 30% increased risk of a major bleeding event. So a 12% right. reduction versus a 30% increase relatively. For every 91 people who are treated with aspirin for their diabetes, you'll prevent one of them from having a major cardiovascular event. There's also the number needed to harm where you can do the reciprocal of 0.9%, and you end up with a number needed to harm of 112 individuals. Out of that 112, one of them will have a major bleeding event. So you're talking 91 versus 112. And so pretty close. they're pretty close, right? And in fact, the conclusion in the New England Journal of Medicine is that that cardiovascular benefit is counterbalanced by that bleeding risk. Pretty close, exactly as you say, Paul. Now, that was in uh, 2018. One month later, the ARRIVE study was published in The Lancet. And here, they found no reduction, no statistically significant reduction benefit from aspirin versus placebo. And this is in a group of uh, patients who had an average ACC AHA risk of 17%. So we talked about patients with diabetes, and now we're talking about a moderately high risk or high risk of having a 10-year stroke or heart attack. And so they found no statistically significant benefit, but they then looked at major bleeding. And what they found was over a two-fold increase in gastrointestinal bleeding associated with aspirin use. So no cardiovascular benefit, but a doubling of the GI bleeding risk. And that brings me to the last study, which was, again, published 
one month later in October of 2018 in the New England Journal of Medicine, where this was an older aged population with a mean age of 74. And they again found no statistically significant benefit in preventing cardiovascular disease associated with aspirin. And they found a 30% increased risk of having a major hemorrhagic event. So we have two studies without cardiovascular benefit, increased bleeding risk in two of them. And then we have a third study, which found a benefit in cardiovascular disease offset by a bleeding risk. Now, when we, as the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, look at the evidence, we look at the totality of the evidence. We're not focused on just those three studies. And so when we pool together 11 randomized controlled trials involving over 130,000 patients, remember I said before 45% reduction? What we find now is that there's a 12% reduction in non-fatal heart attacks, a 12% reduction in non-fatal strokes, but no reduction in mortality from heart attacks, no reduction in mortality from stroke. And so over the 45-year period, things have changed. And just thinking about this comparison to the 1988 study, is there a thought, you know, is it statins, better blood pressure management? Like what, what changed so much? So you're spot on. There have been secular changes over the past 45 years, right? If you go back to 1988, we had a very limited arsenal of drugs available for treating hypertension. Uh, a limited arsenal of drugs or interventions for high cholesterol. We had fewer interventions for helping uh, people stop smoking. And I think uh, there have been secular changes in terms of getting the word out about being more physically active, about eating a healthier diet. And so what has happened over the past 45 years, fortunately, is that the underlying risk for having a stroke or heart attack in the general population. Again, I'm focusing on the population who have not yet had a stroke or heart attack. That narrowing, that improvement in the underlying risk accounts for why the benefit versus the harm from aspirin has narrowed. And consequently, we've changed our recommendations for that. What I haven't yet spoken about is for the population of patients who are 60 and older. And what that New Zealand study showed was that even in the absence of aspirin, your bleeding risk increases as you get older. And then what you have to keep in mind, when we pull the studies together, 10 studies looking at bleeding risk associated with low-dose aspirin, that bleeding risk was not affected by age as a relative risk, but the absolute risk would be multiplied by that relative risk. So there was a 60% uh, 
odds ratio increase in gastrointestinal bleeding and a 30% increased risk for intracranial bleeding. And in the New Zealand study, gastrointestinal bleeding was not entirely benign with 3 to 5% of individuals experiencing mortality from that gastrointestinal bleeding. Now, when you look, however, at intracranial hemorrhages, those are rarer. The GI bleeds are much more frequent, but the mortality rate can be as high as 70% among those having intracranial hemorrhages. So when you look at the balance of deaths related to cardiovascular disease and the balance of deaths associated with gastrointestinal bleeding, and you look at that in the form of a lifetime computer simulation model, right? Because we don't have a lifetime population that we follow, but we can simulate that. What we see is the cardiovascular disease benefit is higher if you start younger, but it is offset to some extent by bleeding risk. And as an individual who has not yet experienced a stroke or heart attack increases around age 60 and higher, that bleeding risk cancels out the benefit from the cardiovascular disease. And so we do not recommend starting aspirin to prevent a first heart attack or first stroke for patients in their 60s. Think about those three randomized controlled trials that I mentioned. This episode is brought to you by Med Mastery. And curbsiders, if you like self-directed learning, if you like to learn by short videos, if you like to test yourself, pre-test, post-test, if you like short lessons done by fantastic educators from all around the world, then you need to check out Med Mastery. MedMastery is an award-winning online learning platform endorsed by the British Medical Association. They offer courses on things that are super practical, like echocardiography, how to interpret chest x-rays, PFTs, fluids and electrolytes, and more. The subscription is affordable, and all their courses are peer-reviewed and CME-accredited. And if you work with a residency program, lots of programs around the world are using MedMastery to train their clinicians. So if you're an educator and need a group subscription for your team, the friendly folks at MedMastery will be happy to assist you. Listeners of this show can claim a discount on any of their subscriptions. Just go to www.medmastery.com curbsiders to claim your discount. That's www.medmastery.com curbsiders. So, John, I just want to summarize and, and recap just one more time. That was a really helpful overview of the voluminous amounts of evidence that we've had and sort of how things have evolved and how we got to where we are. But I just want to make sure I'm understanding. So for adults aged 40 to 59 who have a relatively high 10 years, so greater than 10% cardiovascular disease risk, you should at least have the conversation about starting aspirin in this group. There's a small net benefit, probably. There is a bleeding risk, but probably up until the age of 60, it sounds like the benefit is might be a little bit more than the risk. And then 60 and older, the, the other recommendation, it sounds like you've now crossed the threshold where the bleeding risk, um, we now know, based on some evolving evidence, the bleeding risk probably outweighs any benefit that there is. And in fact, uh, the benefit seems to be uh, thrown into question a little bit. So in this population, um, the recommendation is against starting aspirin in patients who are over the age of 60 just because the the risks of harm outweigh the benefits. Is that a fair summary of what we know so far? I think so. I, I would just you know say briefly that we call that a grade D recommendation and 16 above 
we feel that the harms cancel out the benefit. And just as you can think about grade C as conversation, you can think about grade D as don't. So it's important to know that aspirin use has... You're right on my level, John. This is great. <laughs> it's important to know that uh, aspirin use has greater benefit when started at a younger age. But it also comes with some potential serious bleeding harms. And that risk goes up as people age, particularly for those who are 60 and older. And aspirin multiplies that risk. Okay. Perfect. All right. I think we have another patient to talk about. Alina, why don't you talk okay. us through them? Yeah. So I know we've talked a lot about not starting aspirin when someone is 60 or older. So in this case, we have a 65-year-old gentleman. He has a past medical history of hyperlipidemia. He's on atorvastatin. Uh, he also has a 50-pack year history of smoking tobacco, and he's coming to clinic to establish care. He's been taking one baby aspirin for what he thinks is primary prevention for years. Uh, someone recommended it. He's not really sure. So what is the recommendation if a patient is already taking aspirin for primary prevention? Is there any guidance on stopping it, or what does USPSTF think? So it's a really important critical point. Our recommendation statement focuses on starting aspirin for the prevention of uh, cardiovascular disease. We know from the NHIS that perhaps one in four people in this nation, 40 and older, uh, are uh, taking aspirin, and that perhaps 23% of those are doing so without a clinician recommendation. And perhaps over uh, roughly about 50% of those aged uh, over 70 are doing so. And for those who are doing that, it's important for them to know that there are potential serious harms. And so if they haven't had a conversation with their trusted clinician, I would encourage them to have that conversation Although millions take aspirin without any risk of, without any harm, and they take it safely, there is risk for serious harms, and they really need to have a conversation about the benefits versus the harms, because the evidence has changed over the past 45 years, and there's a narrowing of that overall net benefit when you think about benefit versus harms. So just to be explicit, because I, I feel like the fear is... The takeaway might be just no aspirin for patients for primary prevention, which is not what the recommendation is, um, that there is no explicit recommendation to stop aspirin in patients. It's more you should have a conversation about the risks and benefits with your, with your trusted clinician. Is that correct? Absolutely. Our recommendation is about starting it. Now, anybody who's thinking about stopping a medication, including aspirin, needs to have that conversation so that they understand why they're receiving or taking the medication. And if they don't know and haven't had that conversation with their trusted clinician, they need to go ahead and have that conversation because they may not be fully aware of the risk for harm from stopping uh, as well as starting without having that conversation. So thanks for highlighting that, Paul. Yeah, and Elena, I don't know about your patients, but I, 
I'm kind of shocked by the numbers because mine are wildly excited to come off of medications. I feel like I don't have any patients yeah. that, are, <laughs> that are sneakily taking extra things behind my back, but maybe, maybe I'm not asking the right questions too. So that's, I'm just, I'm staggered that that many people are just sort of taking aspirin though. I guess it makes sense since it's had this reputation as being so helpful for so long. We tend to like simple rules, right? And baby aspirins are available over the counter without a prescription. And uh, once things get out uh, where we think things are beneficial. Uh, one of my favorite books is Predictably Irrational. Uh, it talks about how we think logically we're making a decision based on logic. And it talks about how, for example, why is it that a one-cent headache pill doesn't work, but a 50-cent headache pill will work? And so it's by Dan Ariely, Predictably Irrational. It talks about how we are wired sometimes to make irrational as opposed to what we think we do, which are rational decisions. That makes me feel better. We will add that as a pick of the So really briefly, I did want to ask John, the last recommendation in 2016 discussed uh, aspirin and colorectal cancer prevention and this recommendation seemed like there was a review of evidence, but then ultimately there was no comment on the recommendation. Can you talk a little bit about why that was? Absolutely. So colorectal cancer prevention was a piece of the 2016 recommendation. And in this case, as we did with cardiovascular disease, we looked at new evidence, but we also re-looked at uh, studies that had been published. And when we did that, we looked at four randomized controlled trials up to 10 years, and we found no reduction in colorectal cancer incidence. And in 2016, the Women's Health Study found a decrease in colorectal cancer incidence in observational study follow-up at 17 and a half years. But now that study has 26-year follow-up, and they report no persistence of that benefit. And we have two randomized controlled trials that looked at colorectal cancer mortality. One of them found a decrease in colorectal cancer mortality at 18 years, but the other, the Women's Health Study, did not find a colorectal cancer reduction. So we've got conflicting data from multiple studies. And so we were uh, uncertain about the benefit that we had observed. And again, it's an example where evidence changes. And it should, because the evidence has changed, influence our decisions about what we do for our patients and with them. Yeah, I think... That, that'll be an easier sell, you know, because I feel like that's something that wasn't out there in the ether. Like I knew somewhere I'd heard at some point, maybe there was a reduction in colorectal cancer risk, but it was not something talked about in terms of the way cardiovascular risk was. So I, yeah, I don't think I've met a patient who's taking an aspirin for their bowels. So I feel like that's probably yeah. an easy thing where we're not going to be really reversing a lot of habits or changing a lot of minds because I don't people think of it that way in the first place. So I, it's probably almost easier to have the conversation and sort of makes things a little bit simpler to even sort of leave that out of this particular recommendation. So the good news is that the task force has a number of 
recommenda- a recommendation for reducing the risk of colorectal cancer through evidence-based screening, whether it be through direct visualization or through stool-based test. And anyone who has a concern about their risk for colorectal cancer should have a discussion with their trusted clinician about these other options. Dr. Wong, that, this has been extraordinarily helpful, and I, I thank you so much for catching us up about the changes and sort of the rationale behind those. I guess if you could sort of summarize for our audience what you, you hope they would come away from this audience from, I think that'd be very helpful. So the bottom line here is that when you're thinking about cardiovascular disease, think about age and think about the risk for having a cardiovascular disease event as to whether or not you should or should not start aspirin as part of primary prevention. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. <laughs> uh, that one delighted me. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com, and while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our Curbsiders Digest, recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. We're committed to high-value, practice-changing knowledge, and to do what we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or email us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our writer and producer for this episode, Dr. Elena Gibson, and to our whole team. The Curbsiders is produced and edited by the team at Podpaste. Elizabeth Proto runs our social media, and Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. Until next time, I've been Paul Nelson-Williams. As always, this is Elena Gibson. Thank you, and good night. <laughs>